Indeed, thank you all very much for, for coming along for these uh, very exciting elections. Some of you may, uh, have, sometimes in the media you hear that these elections are extremely tedious because basically we know the outcome before they're going to happen. In, like in the good old Soviet days when uh, the Kremlin was broken in last night and next year's election results were stolen. So in a sense we are in a type of neo-Soviet atmosphere with these elections. But on the other hand, they're extremely exciting because not only do we have one election, not only do we even have two, not only the parliamentary ones which took place on the 2nd of December, but uh, also forthcoming on the 2nd of March, the presidential elections. But in a sense, at the same time, uh, we have the elections which are taking place in the sphere, if you like, of public politics, with, uh, governed by the institutions of a constitutional state, that is political parties, um, all the electoral rules, which now the election law, which in 1993 ran to about 10 pages. It's now a document over 350 pages long. I've waded through it, and uh, absolutely every single detail is, uh, is uh, discussed and uh, uh, regulated to the last iota. So we have, on the one hand, the sphere of public politics uh, taking place with the public um, civic associations and so on, with the media and all the rest. At the same time, as you've all heard and seen, there is a second election going on, and that is the election, if you like, the closed politics system the underground, the, uh, what Churchill would say, dogs fighting under the carpet, which is, uh, was his characterization of Russian or Soviet politics in the time of Stalin. And obviously, in some ways, we've seen with these, uh, I should talk about this later, but the endless, uh, the faction fights. So we have a, an open public contestation, and we have a second one, which is uh, inter-elite conflict between various factions. I should say some words about that later. The question about this, this dualism, if you like, is how can we understand it? I'm not going to say much about it, but some people, for example, have referred to the excellent book, interesting book by Ernest Frankel, which came out in 1941, which was called The Dual State, in which he talks about, it was an interpretation of the origins of uh, modern authoritarianism, Ernest Frankel. And uh, where you have, on the one side, a... The, the, the normative state, that is the normal constitutional state. On the other side, you have the, uh, what he calls the prerogative state. That is the state which rules in an arbitrary and unconstrained manner. So a dual state, and this was uh, a description of Nazi Germany. Uh, leaving aside the uh, ultimate uh, extreme uses uh, to which the, uh, the, the Nazi state went, they are clearly certain, uh, it's quite a fruitful way of looking at it. However, seeing simply the contemporary system as one based on, on one side a, um, the constitutional normative state, and the other side a arbitrary and relatively unlimited power system, I don't think, I mean, while it, there's certainly elements of it, and we've seen them quite vividly in the Yukos affair, the incarceration of, uh, of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, and so on in the last few years. At the same time, I don't think that model really governs really what is going on. Because as far, as far as I can see, what perhaps a better model is to say that on the one side you have, we have a normal constitutional state that is populated by the normal um, characters which we'd expect to find in a constitutional state, political parties, uh, political elites, media, public sphere, debate, which is extraordinarily lively uh, in Russia, in uh, universities and so on and so forth. Um, the internet is exceptionally lively and so on. We have that. And yet, at the same time, we have the development of a whole series of, if you like, para-constitutional um, strategies. 
That is, that the, the power system, the regime, if you like, uh, they put in uh, administration, does not, if you like, attack the Constitution directly. It goes around it, it goes underneath it, it goes to the side of it. So it still, though, remains in formal legitimacy sense um, based on the existing constitutional order. So on the one hand, we have a normal, if you like, uh, real constitutionalism, uh, and on the other side, we have nominal constitutionalism where you have uh, these paleo-constitutional bodies, which takes two forms, this paleo-constitutionalism. On the one side, you have the a whole stack of paleo-constitutional institutions which have developed. I'm not going to go through them all now, but um, bodies like, for example, the, the public chamber, which was established in the wake of Veslan, which brings together certain, uh, the great and the good, 142 of them. This, uh, the public chamber, is a body which duplicates the work of the Duma. So we have a constitutional Duma, on the other hand, we have a paleo constitutional body established to the side, which acts as a type of forum, as a feedback mechanism for society and a, and a place for debate and monitoring of laws and so on, which are all functions which are supposed to be um, carried out by, by Parliament, by the State Duma in the Russian case. And there's a whole stack of them. The State Council, if you, you, most of you will have heard, no doubt, that last Friday on the 10th uh, of this month, Putin made his keynote speech to which body? It was the State Council. This is uh, a body which was established uh, in the wake of the establishment of the seven federal districts and the reform of the Federation Council in the year 2000, which uh, basically um, weakened the Federation Council, and it's a body which brings together the leaders of the uh, Russia's regions. So why make the speech there? Not to Parliament, not to some other public uh, forum. So it's a paleo-constitutional body which fulfills functions which cannot be fulfilled within the framework of the existing constitutional order. It does not attack the, well, I mean, it doesn't, as it were, directly, um, if you like, infringe the existing constitutional order, but it undermines it, it subverts it, and it weakens it. So a dual system, not in the uh, Ernest Triangle sense, but a dual system in a, so if you like, a more modern sense. We have this model. At the same time, my argument would be that the most important thing about the second type of politics, the second political life, with all sorts of parapolitical behavior going on at the same time, is that it's the interrelationship between these two levels which is important. It isn't even the fact that there's two levels, which I think in most systems exist to even to some degree, but obviously in Russia far more extended. It is the fact that the existing system, the formal constitutional order, uh, remains, if you like, the determining, the legitimacy map, uh, which is then subverted with the second order uh, of the, if you like, the arbitrary state developing uh, within and uh, undermining it, but never repudiating it. Hence, this is, if you like, the meaning of why Putin ultimately did leave. Well, he hasn't quite gone yet, but he's planning to go, or says he'll be going, after his two terms, we assume he will actually uh, fulfill what he always said he would do, and that is he would leave after two, um, his two terms, and that is uh, he would leave office formally in May of this year. So this, this dual system which need each other, and so the, the other whole population of paleo constitutionalism, which I won't go into, um, just mention is, <clears throat> are these factions, the factional conflicts. I use the word factions very specifically, um, almost every single uh, description, discussion of contemporary Russian politics um, mentions the word clan and various uh, other words equivalent to it, clan conflicts and so on. A clan I mean, is, I don't think, an appropriate word here because it assumes a permanency of a particular grouping, a grouping which can reproduce itself over time. If you like, the Dnipropetrovsk 
people mafia, as they're sometimes called, is a genuine clan in a, in a metaphorical sense, not a, a blood sense, but a, a metaphorical sense, because it does reproduce itself since the early post-war years, uh, Brezhnev, uh, Kukovin, 1947, and so on. So it, that is something, and today in Ukraine, you do have deeply entrenched groups, clans, if you like, which mix uh, politics, regional base, and economics, powerful economic interests, which provide or populate a different sort of political terrain, hence the trajectory of Ukrainian politics is different from that of Russian politics, where you have no stable clan system. What you do have is these temporary amorphous coalescences of groups which I call factions. Factions which uh, today, clearly the most important one often mentioned, are the Siloviki. These are the four skies, these are the people um, whom Stephen White and Olga Kristinovska allege occupy 70% of state uh, and regional posts today and so on. So these, the, the Siloviki, which as we've seen in this very exciting election campaign before the Duma elections, they are bitterly divided amongst themselves. So this endless succession of the, the Schwarzman case and the Storchak case and this basically clan struggle within the Siloviki, within the four skies, within the former KGB, FSB people, who use what is their method? Their method of modus operandi is not the ballot box, it's their guess, the dawn raid, the attack, the, the hauling off an airport at, uh, or plane at Domodedovans airport and so on. So you have this second struggle going on, uh, which uh, in the paleopolitical sense, which is, in a, which in a sense wasn't, was, wasn't determining the election, but it was framing the way in which the electoral contest was taking place. So, uh, and within that you also you have the, the, the democratic status. These are the people like Surkov and others who put forward this idea of sovereign democracy today. So sovereignty clearly is absolutely the center of Russia's self-image as, as a deeply sovereign state. And it has been from almost the, the first day of its existence as an independent state in 91. But sovereign democracy was an attempt to give some sort of theoretical ideological framework to this, to this notion of Russia as an autonomous actor in international politics. Um, I mean, other factions can be mentioned. Uh, um, Dmitry Medvedev was always quite explicitly as part of the, the, the liberal group, that's, uh, which have two wings, the uh, economic liberals and the lawyers, if you like, the St. Petersburg lawyers, Dmitry Kozak, Dmitry Medvedev, and others, who are quite clearly um, keeping the... And Alexei Kudrin, the economist, and others, who is the Minister of Finance, who uh, these are keeping the liberal banner alive, which... Uh, a banner which uh, the election showed is much weaker and almost uh, exhausted in society is kept alive by this faction within the elite. So in a sense, the liberal dream may have uh, not found much popular response, and we'll look at that in a minute, but it does, uh, does have a factional representation. So public politics is mimicked at, by this closed politics, this factional system, um, liberals and others at the same time. So a number of other factions, of which just one I'll mention, of course, are the, the if you like, the Pomishniki, the, the heavy industry people who are going international. Last year, Russia uh, invested $45 billion of Russian capital went abroad. And uh, it's quite extraordinary. So just, uh, just a bit more than the foreign direct investment, just of which was uh, $43.4 coming inwards. So more Russian capital went out, formally legally this is this time, rather than a form of capital flight as it was in the 1990s. So quite an extraordinary turnaround. And these guys um, also developing a model of state corporatism, the state corporations and so on and so forth. 
Anyway, so that's, uh, the, the, if you like, the context and the framework of the elections. Let's uh, look at the elections uh, more specifically. Um, so we have uh, a fancy machine here, which will... Um, So I've got four tables. This uh, just gives a sense of uh, a framework of what, uh, what happened. Um, so I'll, I'll say first a few words about the, the Duma election, and then I'll say a few words about the presidential election. So we see finally, after many, many years of all uh, elections, and this is the fourth uh, electoral cycle, 2007-2008, the need to reduce the number of parties who have access to the ballot box. And they finally managed it. They got, well, there was uh, at some talk whether it was going to be 13, 14, 15 were at one point registered to go. But at the end, 11. These 11 uh, parties uh, went to the ballot box. So it's, it's quite a, uh, um, a, f a fascinating list to see who's there. You've got some solid parties who've been fighting since the very beginning, the Communist Party, the Russian Federation. Um, you have others who, Yablika, which is uh, also a classic party, which has fought all four uh, basically all four elections which Russia has had today. But this was always one of the recommendations. Um, under Putin in 2001, a new electoral law was adopted. Um, it was modified later. And it was quite explicit. The aim was to reduce the number of parties, but to make each party more able and to ensure that it acted as an electoral body. Because until then, we'd always said um, parties in Russia are not much more than a form of intra-elite dialogue. So when this form of inter-elite dialogue is gone, so factions have, have intensified as this public politics has gone. But nevertheless, you, you had 11 parties which went up to it. So this, this is the result, which in many ways is quite a... Uh, a fascinating outcome. Clearly, uh, the, the fact that Putin identified himself on the 1st of October with United Russia, the so-called party of power. That, uh, yeah. um, I think it's just about visible. We don't need the footnotes, so it's fine. Yep, great. United Russia was a party which uh, came born in 1999. And uh, on the 1st of October, Putin, as always, as a, did an unexpected move. He put himself at the head, in fact, the only one on the three-person, well, in this case it turned out a one-person national list for United Russia. This was an unexpected move because, in a sense, you could say this was the Putin deflation. By doing so, with his enormous popularity, um, running into the 80s, and at one point it even peaked uh, about a month ago at, over into the early 90s, 90% uh, popularity support, well, popularity not support. Um, and so by aligning himself with the party, he suddenly changed the whole terms of uh, political trade. By doing so, for one thing, he was going to undermine the other party, Just Russia, number four, which just managed to scrape in. In August 2006, Putin himself had been the prime mover to establish this second party of power. 
he had at that point, the model basically was that they would have established a competitive party system, yes, relatively controlled from the center by the Kremlin inspired from above, but nevertheless, that they would walk, or as Mao Zedong used to say, on two legs. But in the course of 2007, and certainly from the Somalia elections in October 2006 as well, the elite, the Kremlin itself, got scared because the second party actually began to fight and it began to win and it began to fight the, uh, the main party, United Russia. And so at that point, it, the, the Kremlin got extremely alarmed in the, um, the regional elections of March 2007 were a, uh, a moment when they suddenly realized that instead of attacking the communists, and that was the aim of Just Russia, the aim was to take the vote away from the left, from the communist party, they, instead of which it started attacking uh, United Russia and it started showing the fact that the elite itself was going to start fighting amongst itself in a formal public politics form of way. And so at that moment, Putin basically got scared and they then moved, decided more and more to move in a single column. In the end, they decided that they would let just Russia in. Part of the reason, of course, for all of this is that the Communist Party of the Russian Federation itself has remained unreformed. It's still led by Gennady Zyuganov, the veteran. If you look at its party program, it really has almost nothing to say about um, contemporary political and economic issues. It's still talking about renationalization, that capitalism is bad. <laughs> it may well be bad, to say it. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's uh, with absolutely no positive agenda that give back uh, the property to the people and so on and so forth. Uh, the fourth party, um, number three on our list here, Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, of course, headed by uh, Vladimir Zhuganovsky, uh, quite a, a veteran party. They're number two on their electoral list, their three-party, three-person national list, of course, was Andrei Lugovoy, the person the British government um, wants to have extradited. And so that he's proved, he proved to be a great vote winner. So, as always, Vladimir Zhuganovsky uh, manages to, to get through, and he's a tremendous political campaigner. And in fact, the political program put forward by the LDPR is perhaps one of the most sensible ones, surprisingly enough, uh, amongst, uh, amongst these four, with quite genuine attempt to deal, um, find answers to genuine problems. Anyway, so four parties got in, uh, and as you can see, huge predominance of United Russia. The question then becomes, and one which uh, I hope we'll touch in discussion, what is the future of this party? Is it going to become, is Russia going to become a dominant party system? Is it going to reproduce something like the, what, you know, the usual analogy is with the party of the institutionalized revolution in Mexico, which uh, between 1929 and the year 2000 um, dominated Mexican politics or even the LDP in Japan or such like. So a hugely dominant party. I'm not entirely sure because the dominant party in both those countries was the mechanism for elite reproduction and for power, if you like, to reproduce itself within the party. And that is something the Russian leaders, presidencies, absolutely refused to allow. And this is why um, Yeltsin was not a party member. Putin is not, even though he fought uh, at the head of the United Russia list. He did not, is not a party member. And Dmitry Medvedev is quite explicitly saying he will not join United Russia. If they had joined it, then you'd find the party itself would become, uh, and its leadership, become a mechanism to control the political leadership. And that is something the political leadership does not want to allow to happen. Uh, there's much more we could say about that, but uh, I'll move on to the um, third. Um, it's a bit on the small side. I hope it's uh, visible, um, but uh, I'll just uh, 
But can we magnify a little bit just so it doesn't make the group lose the spot on the bottom? Yeah. Um, so I'll make it a bit bigger. Uh, oh, okay. Maybe a bit smaller. Yeah, good. Thank you. This gives you, um, and the next um, one as well, gives you an idea of what's been going on over the years. Um, the Russian party system has been called by Richard Rose and others as a floating party system. In actual fact, this uh, definition of a floating party system isn't quite accurate. We now see, for example, three parties have fought all the, um, well, the, the, um, the elections since the beginning of the, of the system. So it's uh, the, the, the Communist Party, the Liberal Democrats, and the Yablika Party. So they fought in 2003, two, 1993, 1995, 1999, 2003, and um, as the next um, table will show, uh, 2007. So all five elections which have taken place since uh, independence and the Korean party. So there are, a certain sense, we can see also the secular decline, uh, the, the, the fortune of the Communist Party and so on in Yablika. So this is just simply to say that, the, in a sense, the party system is beginning to achieve some sort of stability, uh, though it's constantly, uh, it's not stable yet, but at least there's certain, it's populated, the party field is populated by a certain number of parties who are now beginning to fight elections um, over time, over and over again. My final table shows simply the way the trends over these five elections. And so the, the bottom part just shows adding up, uh, for example, how many different communist parties there were. Um, we're down now down to one. So in a sense, the simpli simplification of the party field at the same time, the, uh, the way that the decline. You can see quite clearly the decline of the Communist Party, the enormous development of a centrist ideology. I mean, United Russia is a centrist. It, it calls itself a liberal conservative party. Um, and so it, it's quite clear it's now up to 75%. So it's swamped out all other parties. The liberals, and this is the point I really want to make on this, have collapsed. They're down to, together with including civic force, down to 3.6% in the last election. So this is catastrophic decline of uh, the liberals. Um, the national patriots have also declined, and this was always one of the main enemies of the, the Kremlin, who... Um, um, so... <coughs> the. The, the national patriots have also been marginalized. So liberals and, uh, uh, so both, if you like, the left and the right have been marginalized. Um, the turnout figures were, were quite high, so I mean, contrary to expect, expectations that turnout would fall, then it, it hasn't. Right, so um, just a few final questions, thoughts on the next election. On the 2nd of uh, March, we will be having an election. Dmitry Medvedev, has, is going forwards, and uh, I think, um, I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to put a fiver on it, that he stands a good chance to win, I think, in the forthcoming <laughs> election, being cautious. But you never know with Russian politics, it's always the unexpected will happen. But if all going well, of course, Medvedev's popularity is, if you like, transferred from Putin. That's an interesting phenomenon, in the sense that we often argue, or people often argue, that Putin's regime is a personalistic one in a sense that Lukashenko, which I've always said is not, in a sense, 
it's a peculiar combination, yes, of personal qualities, at the same time of institutional charisma from the presidency, the post itself. So it's a combination of the two, it needs both sides. And the fact that it is transferable itself is quite an indication of the nature of the system, which remains still constrained within the legitimacy of the formal constitutional order. So it isn't, I mean, yes, it is a succession. At the same time, it's a success or a nomination or what have you. At the same time, it is one done purely, formally, within the framework of the um, formal constitutional normative system. If you like, these elections bring the two systems together. What Putin has done, bottom line, is outflanked the system of closed politics, the arbitrary state, and has since brought the two together, which through this electoral process, he's also given himself a framework with a very strong vote with uh, United Russia. If you like, a political, and also with Medvedev, a reserve, a powerful, if you like, political platform in the Duma, in other instruments of political contestation, in which to face down some of the other the factions in, to manage it. So as they go together, they're going in tandem as a sort of a duarchy, a duumvirate, that is Medvedev for president, Putin for prime minister. Now, Russia has never had such a system before because it, uh, it's a, uh, to have a, 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 a dual-headed leadership which has led to dual power in 1917 and so on. However, in many ways, Putin needs to go forwards because, if you like, Medvedev will be the representative of the formal constitutional order, whereas Putin goes forwards as prime minister, but at the same time, as the only person who can manage the closed, the second system of paraconstitutional and, if you like, of closed political system based on factional fights and arrests and so on. So, if you like, the two systems are going forwards, and this is why they need to have this double um, this tandem going forwards. So Putin will not only be the prime minister, he will also be not only PM, but he'll also be, if you like, the FM, the faction manager, and that is the role which I think he's been, he has a flanking movement to support Medvedev and thus allow Medvedev to continue and work in the sphere of public politics with all the normal policies and foreign policy and so on. Meanwhile, Putin will be managing the faction, constraining the rampant elite conflict which we know uh, is there, which is based because with energy prices having risen, the, the stakes uh, are so high, so enormously high, as we saw in the Ukraine affair, and Rosneft um, um, basically um, taking over much of Ukraine's uh, property and with huge rents and such like. The stakes are enormously high, so it's, it's this duumvirate is solving certain political tasks. So uh, that's, uh, that I think would lead forwards. And of course, out of all the possible candidates for the presidency, Medvedev, I think, was the one that few of us, I mean, he was always mentioned as a subordinate to Sergei Ivanov, but I mean, in the sense that this is one person. Medvedev is not a factional person. I do, he is a liberal, yes, but one of the key things about Medvedev is that he is not in any way recognized as a member of any other factions. So in other words, by putting forward Medvedev, he's not only putting forward a person who is relatively liberal, he's also putting forward someone who is not a representative of that closed political system. He's a representative of open politics. So in a sense, it's a relatively uh, positive uh, development. And it may show, and I think it's the final comment, that the main challenge of the Medvedev presidency will be to close this gap between the formal constitutional um, system and the nominal constitutional arbitrary state, and with, populated by factions and paraconstitutionalism. And I think that uh, with uh, Medvedev's speech, um, program speech um, to the Civic Congress uh, a couple of weeks ago where he talked about legal nihilism 
being the greatest challenge facing Russia, I think he's aware of that particular challenge. So I think I'll stop there. Stephen. Thank you, Richard. And now Stephen. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I feel rather like um, those of us who are old enough used to feel when you went to the, the cinema in the old days, when you used to go to the pictures, as some of us remember calling it, where you, know, you would have a main feature and you would have a kind of support act, which was you know, neither here nor there. Um, I'm, I, I'm afraid you've just seen the main feature, so I feel I'm rather the support act. Um, but also, you, another thing, crucial part of your old cinema program was, um, was a few adverts. So I'm going to start with a quick couple of adverts. Um, as Margot mentioned, I, after many years at the BBC and a couple of years doing uh, various things in the world of business, um, I'm now running the Russell-British Chamber of Commerce. And uh, largely thanks to uh, an idea put forward by my excellent commercial manager, Amelia Ackland, who's over here, um, we've now decided that today's students are tomorrow's business people. Uh, and we've introduced student membership to the Russell-British Chamber of Commerce for the first time. Uh, it'll cost you 50 quid a year. Uh, it gives you the chance to come along to our events, to meet people from the business world. Um, there will be a quota on numbers because business people don't like being over, like swamped by students. Um, but if anyone is interested in this idea, do see me or Amelia, can you stand up just, just a second, please, so I can see who you are. Uh, so if you can sit, speak to one of us afterwards and uh, uh, we will send you details. Um, and a second advert, uh, and this is particularly aimed at any Russians in the audience. Um, in conjunction with Pushkin House, as starting next week, we're running a series of seminars um, called The Best of British Business. So because we're a, a two-way chamber, we, we act as a, um, a bridge for Russian business coming here and for British business going there. And um, these seminars are designed to show Russians in particular, but it's not exclusively for Russians, um, best, best British business practice, uh, starting with uh, legal matters next week. Um, and we've decided to make a special student price of £10 per, um, per seminar. Uh, and again, see if you see either of us and give us your email address, we can send you the details of that afterwards. Advert over. Um, so now for the Support Act. Um, as Margaret mentioned also, uh, yes, I did spend many years at the BBC, and in fact, this is the, these elections, the elections in December and the, uh, the coming parliamentary elections, there's a, a certain nostalgia on my part. Um, I had the very dubious distinction of being the only person in the BBC to have covered every post-Soviet Russian election uh, before December last year. Um, the BBC decided in its wisdom in 2004 that, uh, quote, well, Russia's not really news anymore, um, which was why, and I said to them, I said, well, actually, I'll go and find something else to do with Russia because it's more important than just working for the BBC. And I was told, oh, Stephen, you must be more flexible. Um, and I said, no, read my lips, I do Russia. I first went there in 1974, um, have been going back regularly ever since. Um, and as I'm sure most of the people in this audience realize, you know, once, once that country gets beneath the skin, then you know, you're stuck with it for life. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, you can't get rid of it, that's for sure. Um, in fact, I was accused of being somewhat sexist the other day when I described Russia as being just like a woman. Beautiful, fascinating, and at times deeply frustrating. But once you're married to her, you're married for life. Um, I just want to pick up quickly on a couple of points that, uh, that Richard made, uh, using the prerogative of being second speaker. Um, 
when you, Richard was talking about the, the, the Sulebi key and, and a lot of the battles going on behind the scenes, um, I was asked on a, um, a business program on Fox Business the other day uh, how to describe the current climate in Russia. And I described it as, I said, well, Russia's a place full of contradictions. Uh, I said, I would describe it as tense calm uh, because, you know, you speak to the average Ivan in the street about these elections and he's, he's not actually desperately excited about them. He knows what the outcome is going to be, just like in Soviet times, as Richard said. Um, but there are these people who are around the Kremlin who probably are not filling their diary with appointments too far after, uh, after the 2nd of March at the moment. Uh, so there is this kind of tension that's there. Um, also, uh, just picking up another point Richard made, um, Russians for many years you know, have loved slogans. And one of the things why, you know, I would not say we, ha we have a repeat now of the Soviet Union, but there are certain elements of the structure there now that are rem reminiscent, for those of us who can go back into Soviet times, uh, of of the Soviet Union um, and that phrase sovereign democracy um, you know it's great isn't it you know, what does it mean you know, it's one of those it reminds me very much of um, a phrase that I remember um, taking apart when I was uh, before I worked at the BBC for six years I was a lecturer in Soviet military studies at Santos and um, uh, I picked up on the phrase develop socialism Remember that one, those of you who are old enough? Yes, back in the 80s, developed socialism. And I remember there was a, there was a description of it. They were trying to, because actually what they were talking about was um, uh, rampant stagnation. Um, and the developed socialism, they had, to, they had to think of some way of saying, well, actually, you know, things are getting better, of course. And they, they had this description. They said, you know, some countries are at the stage of developed socialism. Some are at the one before that, and others are at the one yet before that, which in fact took you back into, the into capitalism, if you actually followed it logically, but you weren't supposed to do that. Um, also, another phrase they have at the moment, of course, managed democracy. That's one they like. Uh, it's, it's gone out of fashion a little bit recently. Um, a, uh, a colleague, uh, when I was still at the BBC, uh, was at a meeting in the Kremlin uh, with um, an advisor to the president, and he said, he, he, with a, a rather nasty grin, he, he changed the phrase to manage dictatorship. Um, so uh, take that for what you will. Um, anyway, getting on to more specifically the points I'm supposed to be talking about. Um, now, when Richard and I discussed this, we, he said, okay, you, know, you do the politics because, you know, he's, he's a professor and he's, he's allowed to do that. And he's written all these pointy-headed books. Um, and I said, well, I'll do, I'll do kind of business and economics. But... Um, more stressing the business point, because, and I know this, this is going to be absolute heresy to say it in, in the LSE, um, but you know, not only am I not an economist, but I go back to my university days at Leeds, when one of my lecturers um, you know, definitely turned me away from economics, because he said, well, an economist, it's someone who sees something happening in practice and then tries to work out if it can happen in theory. Um, so I would never describe myself as an economist. Uh, I've been in my Santos days a kind of semi-academic and then a journalist. Um, but what I do find is that now being in the world of business, uh, but still obsessed by Russia, that you look at Russia in a very different way. Um, it's very easy, and this is, not, uh, this is not meant as a criticism, um, but we perhaps would like to discuss it later. Uh, but it's very easy in academia or in journalism to get on your high horse about all sorts of things um, and to be outraged. And um, uh, for example, let's take the Yukos affair, because I mean that is very relevant to business. Um, and you can use all sorts of phrases. You can, you know, you can say this is disgraceful the way they took, took apart Russia's most successful company. And, um, you know, then, and, you know, look at this. Holokovsky was such a great businessman. And now he is languishing in a prison camp in Siberia. And, yes, there is a personal tragedy there. Um, but actually, you know, he's, he's, he's not a saint. You know, it's not Saint Mikhail of Holokovsky. Um, 
you look at the way in which he got his money and you look at his consumer roots, you know, there's, the, the picture is a lot more grey than, than uh, many in the media try to paint it. And indeed, the first job I had after I left the BBC was actually working in PR for the company that was doing Holocaust PR. Um, and I saw what a, uh, what a sharp tool PR can be. Um, I'll come back to that a little bit later on. But I think it is, it's important, before you get too much on your high horse about these things, actually it's important to, to look at the whole picture. And certainly with the UCOS affair, you know, there are two sides to that argument. And I think there's, I, would, I would draw a big distinction, for example, between something like the UCOS affair and something like the Tiananmen Square massacre in, in China. You know, I think that that is something where you can quite rightly get indignant. Uh, and that is, you know, it's a totally different issue. Uh, and then there would be serious questions about should you be doing business with a country like that. Um, a more recent example with Russia, of course, is the Litvinenko affair. Now, should the UK break off all relations with Russia uh, because of a particularly nasty murder of someone who, after all, was a British citizen on the streets of London? Um, or should British business acknowledge that Britain has been the biggest investor into the Russian economy for the past two years uh, and, whilst making diplomatic protests, actually draw a line between business and politics? I'll leave you to think about that, and I'll come back to that one uh, towards the end. Um, my approach now to looking at Russia does tend to be uh, something of a pragmatic one. Um, when we look at the, the Duma that uh, Richard so uh, clearly described, the, the current Duma after the December elections, um, is that a good Duma for business? Well, possibly not, but probably doesn't matter, actually. Um, it's certainly a better Duma for business than, uh, than Yeltsin ever had uh, to, to deal with, um, and certainly uh, President Medvedev, presumably President-elect Medvedev, uh, will find it a lot easier to deal with that Duma than, than Yeltsin ever did. So I would suggest that's a good thing. I mean, I would actually say, looking at the 90s, um, which was very much the time of, of, uh, of um, crony capitalism, and uh, I did a, a wonderful interview in 1994 with um, someone from Moscow Business School uh, who said to me, well, Stephen, I would say we do not now have free market, but we do have flea market. Uh, and, you know, if you think back to Moscow in the mid-90s, it was, it was pretty chaotic. Um, and there, was, there were lots of flea markets. Well, they're now becoming shopping malls. Um, so, th that, you know, I think we have to say, you know, it's a good job that that period is in the past. And certainly, I would actually say, um, and uh, Chai, for your sake, I've got to bring in a bit of, you use the word history at least. Um, I would say that historians writing books of the post-Soviet period, maybe in a few years' time, will actually look back as, you know, because time kind of condenses as you get older. Um, and they will say, well, yes, there was the Brezhnev period, the later years of Brezhnev, up to 82, which was known as the period of stagnation. And I would suggest that 96 to 99 was the second period of stagnation for business, politics, economics, you name it, in Russia. Because what was Yeltsin interested in in his second term? Getting uh, amnesty as soon as, he, uh, as soon as he stepped down so that people didn't accuse him or you know, take him to court for, for breaking up the Soviet Union, because after all, it was he and not Gorbachev that signed the CIS agreement. So you, know, you can actually point the finger far more firmly at Yeltsin to say you were responsible for the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was he that was responsible, as many Russians saw it, for the demoralization of the army. Uh, he was the one who turned the tanks on parliament in 1993. Um, and all he was concerned about in his ailing second period, because of course he, I mean, he should never have been elected anyway. I mean, the man had a heart attack before the second round of voting in 1996. And if it wasn't for the fact that the so-called free press had all been bought up by the oligarchs, um, then there might have been a level playing field and who knows, the communists might have come back. But in that period, it was definitely a period of stagnation. 
Um, and, you know, culminating in some ways in the, the crash of the ruble in 1998, um, which ironically helped Russian business because suddenly, with, every, with the ruble falling to a quarter of its value, uh, you couldn't just go out and buy all the imported goods that you wanted, and Russians actually had to start making things for themselves. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, a lot of the developments in Russian business, you can date back to that, and you can say, actually, it, was, it, was, it may have been a harsh lesson, but it was actually a good thing. Um, and then, 31st of December 1999, Yeltsin steps down, um, and I would suggest that, uh, that that was probably what Russia needed at that time too because there hadn't been a lot of uh, progress uh, under him. Um, coming back to the, the, the current Duma, as I say, as Richard pointed out, um, very few liberals, and indeed, um, I'm not sure if you noticed this one today, but um, Nemtsov has actually stepped down from the, or suspended his membership of the SPS as of today, of the Union of Right Forces, um, which again, I think, says a lot about the, uh, the state of the, uh, the so-called liberals in, uh, in Russia. Um, now, from this point, I, want to, it's, I, I feel as if um, you know, I might sort of touch on history and politics and economics and so on. I'm going to touch on religion a bit because I take my, I take my reading now from Putin, 8th of February, 2008, because basically this weekend I pretty well tore up what I was going to say because I thought, well, Putin said it all um, on, uh, on Friday. Um, so I've got lots of quotations. Uh, also, just to actually a, a little point, cause, you know, uh, much as I loved old auntie across the road, um, and Bush House is a great place to work because of the people who work there. It's just a shame about the people who run it. Um, but uh, I thought that this says a lot about the current state of, of media coverage and dumbing down. Um, now, Putin made it, you know, it was a 50-minute speech to the State Council on Friday, um, which I printed it out for other purposes, but, I mean, there it is. Um, okay, it's, it's sort of on half a page, but it's small print anyway. It's, it's 21 pages, basically. Um, the, um, the version of it that appeared on the BBC website on Friday was Putin vows arms race response. And it was uh, that long. Um, now, actually, if you read the whole thing, that comes almost as a PS. Um, what Putin was actually talking about was uh, the development of Russia up to 2020. And it was sort of, oh, by the way, I can't not mention military matters. And, um, you know, we don't like what NATO is doing. Um, and I just thought, it, I just found it extraordinary. That, well, mind you, I suppose because you know, if Russia isn't news anymore, then, then why should you concentrate on it? But um, I just thought it was extraordinary to see that you know, most of what Putin said about the economy, about politics, um, uh, about social matters, education, healthcare, and so on, was entirely lost by the BBC. Um, now, Richard actually stole my thunder in that he, he mentioned that, the, uh, that uh, Russia had... Uh, capital inflow of, well, my figure was in dollars, $82.3 billion, uh, although you said that, in fact, the um, uh, capital going out was more than that. But, it's, uh, but that's still, I mean, it's, it's still better than it was in, in the 1990s when it was all going out. Um, to quote again from Putin, the stock market was worth $60 billion at the end of 1999, but by the end of 2007, it had risen to $1.330 trillion. Um, even though I'm in the world of business, actually, when you get into these numbers with lots and lots of noughts, I get lost too, so don't worry if you are. Um, I know it's a lot, though. You know, it's a lot, a lot of money. Um, GDP growth last year in Russia, 8.1%. State foreign debt down to 3% of GDP, which is amongst the lowest in the world. Um, possibly one of the most relevant fi uh, figures you can um, pick up on is, is real incomes and pensions up two and a half times in the last eight years. Um, and the reason that, 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 I mean, that is so significant is... 
you, you know, go to, go to any of the mega malls around the Moscow Ring Road now, and, uh, you, you know, you, you will see, you know, anyone who had any doubts that, that Russia is actually developing and there is a middle class that is growing fast, um, you know, these doubts get blown away. Um, I, I made the, say the mistake, really, of, of going to Ashan in the, um, in, in Moscow, and uh, Moscow Mega Mall, just, what's it called, not the LA Baptist, that's going along, but it's sort of due south of Moscow, uh, on the Ring Road. Uh, I went there on, on the 30th of December, and um, I, I described it at the time as a small glimpse of heaven. Um, but simply because there were so many people there. I mean, just first of all, getting a park, a parking space was a nightmare, uh, and then going in, I mean, was just, you'd think they were giving things away. Um, the, at Biela Dutch, in fact, what they're building now is what's going to be the biggest shopping centre in Europe. Um, and, you know, all the big foreign brands are there. Um, Mega has actually all been pretty well set up by, um, by IKEA. And that, for a business success, is, is a very interesting one, because I'm quite often asked to talk to uh, British businessmen about, who are thinking about doing business in Russia, or indeed some of them are already doing business in Russia. Um, and one of the things I, I always say to them, I say, well, you know, it's crucial to go there with an open mind and a sense of humor and, and make sure you come back to them as well. But it's also important to, uh, to have lots and lots of patience. Um, and the IKEA example is, is, is a great one to show that, because anyone thinking of going in to make a fast buck is stuck in a time warp in the early 90s, because those times are very much gone. Um, you know, if you are serious about doing business in Russia, you need to go in with a long-term plan. You need to establish a very good relationship with a partner, uh, and you know, you'll have some hope of actually uh, doing really good and indeed successful business. Um, IKEA opened their first store in February 2000. I remember going there. That, it took two and a half hours to do the last two miles to get to the shop, uh, the one in the north by Himki, uh, the appallingly positioned one, so that when you look at the, salt, the war memorial, all you can see is IKEA, which I think is a outrageous. I wrote a fook about it, a foreign, foreign correspondent about that for the BBC. But anyway, that's where it is. Um, and uh, it, it was, you know, it was new and, it, and people were crowding in there. So, but that was nearly eight years ago. They started making a profit last year. Now, if you speak to any businessman, that, you know, that is a long-term view. You know, seven years to get, to get a profit. That's, um, that's pretty significant. Um, but one reason why I think that, going back to Putin's speech last Friday, one, one reason why I think it was actually, uh, I would recommend you to read it as a, as a guideline for his view of Russia till 2020, is that it wasn't just saying these fantastic statistics, you know, oh, aren't we wonderful, aren't we doing well? It was actually um, very realistic because it picked up a number of the serious issues facing the economy and facing business. Uh, there's too much dependence on energy resources and commodities. Um, now, you may say, well, that's stating the obvious, but actually it's very good to hear the president say that because uh, this is one thing that we come across with a lot of the Russians that we deal with, is they say, you know, that, I mean, two words, bureaucracy and corruption, which come up again and again and again, um, and, and actually particularly bureaucracy, I think the corruption problem is less than it was, it's still there, but it's less than it was in the 90s. But the bureaucracy is still there. It is still difficult. Many Russians are, do battle with it and win, but it is still difficult actually just to set up a small business in Russia. Um, and, you know, the oil and the gas are going to run out. Um, particularly if he's looking to 2020, he's looking to, to, to uh, they, they're going to need other, other methods of, uh, of getting money. Um, so that was it, was, it was good to hear that Putin is aware of it. He's making people know that he's aware of it. Um, too much dependence on imported goods and technology. Um, and I, to quote, the pace of innovative development must be substantially faster than it is today. You know, there are still many of the old Russian stroke Soviet breaks on the system. 
Um, Putin wants the middle class to make up between 60 and 70 percent of, of society by 2020, um, which would be a huge turnaround um, from, from what it was five, ten years ago. But then they're now saying it's about 21 percent of the population. And as I say, go to the shopping malls. And you know, not just Moscow. I was in Kazan last year um, at the EBRD meeting. And uh, one of the things that summed up for me progress was a big banner sign across the road selling Jaguar cars. I'd been in Kazan before that, 15 years before, and you certainly didn't see a Jaguar car in Kazan then. Um, he, Putin complained that labor productivity in Russia remains very low. Um, labor costs are the same as in developed countries, but the return is several times lower. Um, but he wasn't just complaining at the population. He said, the state must be active in helping people to change their profession, to find employment, or start their own business. This depends on creating a comfortable environment for small businesses. Um, now, I can assure you, in the, uh, the Russia-British Chamber of Commerce, this is, this is music to my ears, uh, because it is the sort of thing we're hearing. Um, now, it's words. The, the, the real plan, you know, the real question is, how will we see it come into action? Will we see it come into action? Um, but the man at, who's still at the top for the next couple of weeks is still talking about it. People have to give bribes in every controlling institution. It's just terrible, he said. Um, and he called it, set, set out a plan, presumably, for his successor. First, give everyone equal opportunities. Second, create the motivation for innovative behavior. Third, radically increase the economy's effectiveness, above all through raising labor productivity. Um, yeah, these, are, these are actually all very practical and very encouraging uh, ideas. Um, but I think it does set out the store. Now, whether it's going to be in tandem with Medvedev or, or how it's done, uh, it, is, it is setting out the, the stall for Medvedev in whatever role Putin's going to play. I just want to, uh, because you can't entirely split economics and business away from politics in Russia, so I'm going to come back slightly to, uh, to politics and give a, throw in a couple of ideas. Um, I think one of the big questions is what chances Medvedev got of being independent? Um, well, uh, in a previous incarnation a year ago, I, I did a study of uh, of Dmitry Medvedev and those around him. And at that time, he already had a, a team of 17 people who, uh, as Richard said, had nothing to do with the seal of key. In fact, they're all lawyers. Um, they're all from St. Petersburg, apart from one who was trained in Vladivostok and then did a postgraduate degree in St. Petersburg. Um, so he has got his own people, uh, and that is definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, but also, this idea that Putin can, can sort of set Medvedev running but be the puppet master... Um, I'm going to say something which is like a sort of contradiction in terms. I don't know if any of you have ever walked any distance blindfolded. Um, now, when I was at the BBC, we had, to, we had a thing called the Hostile Environment Course. Uh, and we had to do this just to see how good our sense of direction was. And we were, put, we were in a field, and they put a blindfold on us, and they said, right, you know, walk 100 yards. And there was a marker. There was, that's what we were supposed to get as far as. And one person almost got there. I ended up over there. One person went literally four paces in front and went, was going round and round in circles. Um, now, the reason I'm saying this is because this may be what happened. You know, Putin may think he can control Medvedev, um, but even without the blindfold, Medvedev may not walk in the straight line that Putin wants. Medvedev, with his own team, may actually go off on a, on a tangent. Um, so, you know, I think it's by no means a foregone conclusion that, oh, it's going to be Putin, the puppet master, uh, con controlling, uh, uh, controlling Medvedev. Um, I throw forward two potential scenarios we might like to discuss, and I'm going to wind up soon, I'll go promise. Um, one is that, um, if you like, two extremes. One is that in six months' time, a constitutional crisis is uh, arranged, 
uh, Medvedev has to step down. And who is the knight in, white, in, in shining armor who comes in on the white charger? Ah, Putin can, because the elections, the two periods have gone, and any time after that, he's, able, he's liable to come back, or able to come back. So that's, uh, that's a, a potential scenario, I suggest. Or another one, and it ties in with what he was saying now on Friday about Russia up to 2020, is he in fact trying to create a dynasty? Medvedev comes in now for four years, Putin comes back in 2012, does another eight years, when that's finished, when we're up to 2020, oh, Medvedev, who's about the same age as Putin is now, can come back again, using a bit of experience, for another eight years. Um, maybe total nonsense. Maybe uh, I said this to one Russian who poo-pooed it and said, no, no, Russians don't think that far ahead. But who knows? Um, in conclusion, two quick ones. I mentioned PR earlier. Um, and yes, it, it actually it can be a double-edged sword, and it can be a rather nasty business. Um, but Russia sometimes, I think, could do with some. Um, for example, particularly with dealing with gas in Ukraine. Apparently, they've done a deal today. Ukraine has not had its gas turned off. But the whole way in which Russia has handled the, the question of, of Ukraine's gas has, is not, has not been good. You know, they definitely need some lessons in PR because, you know, they, they just, uh, you know, cutting off the gas, frightening Europe, not terribly clever. Um, and finally, coming back to the Litvinenko affair, um, yes, you can apply all sorts of words, nasty, outrageous, criminal, disgraceful, um, and certainly um, I think the uh, UK government is obliged to, uh, to react uh, when the request to extradite uh, Lugovoy was, was uh, simply turned down. Um, but I actually, and, and I can criticize this government for many things, particularly its healthcare policy, um, with my wife being a doctor, uh, but I think that on this occasion they, they pretty well got it right. And they've, driven, they've drawn a line, there's a clear line, between uh, the politics and the diplomatic side and business. Um, and we have close links with the Russian embassy here, with the British embassy in Moscow, uh, with Russian business, with British business. Um, and none of our member organizations has, has actually been particularly concerned about what's been going on. They said, yes, it's unfortunate. Uh, but, and this may sound uh, horrific if you want to get up on your high horse, but when it comes to the crunch, business is business, and we need them, and they need us. Thank you. Right. Um, I'd like to open the floor for discussion. Um, uh, can you wait to be recognized by me? Um, we have got a microphone, so will you then wait for the microphone to arrive? And can you please uh, announce... Uh, say who you are and, and what your affiliation is. And stewards, can you please keep an eye on me because I will try to indicate who the next question is coming from while the question is being asked or answered. Thank you very much. So over to you. Yes. Um, my name is Alan Taylor. Um, I've got a Russian art gallery and uh, I'm also a lawyer. But does um, all that really matters to the electorate in Russia, the um, fact that Russia is now a superpower and uh, they're not really interested in other issues that come to our attention over here, like the um, apartment bombings, the uh, nuclear bombers coming down and having a crack at British airspace, the um, asylum achievers over here, like Berezovsky and co, or the Litvinenko uh, murder, 
or the murders or assassinations of political leaders. Richard. Richard. I, I, I don't think the Russia would even claim to be, is it on? To, to be a superpower, though a great power, yes. From the very first word, Putin has given it some muscle. Absolutely. But uh, as uh, Stephen said, the um, Russian GDP is $1.3 trillion at the moment, which uh, is you know, fantastic compared to what it was. But on that, it's trying to run an army of 1.1 million. It's trying to run a whole nuclear um, uh, weapons industry. It's trying to run, um, you know, to do everything on what is actually just a little bit more, well, just ba basically double the U.S. defense budget. So the U.S. defense budget is coming up to $600 billion. So it's actually, in a sense, it's uh, overstretched. So I'm not sure this argument that it's become now, as it were, an energy superpower, that it's because of all of this sort of uh, huge windfall, natural resource, not just energy, but also other natural resources, that this has given it, given it a, certain, uh, yep, a certain spring in the step. What Putin has been saying, and for example, last year, the 10th of February Munich speech, when he uh, quite clearly stated his concern about enlargement of NATO, the concern about the missile defense in Poland and the Czech Republic and so on, that those were concerns which were there, for example, in his uh, Bundestag speech in September 2001, and if you like, public discourse has been talking precisely about those issues in different ways, almost from the very first word, minute when the so when independent Russia was established. So there's nothing new about these fundamental concerns about the state. And I simply don't draw an equation between you know, Russia becoming, I mean, it is not trying to establish itself as the center of, if you like, a, um, a balancing against Western Anglo-American hegemony and so on. It is not going towards a balancing position, which is you know, what realist theory would suggest would happen. It's not doing it. I mean, Shanghai Corporation Organization, it's not quite clear. It's dancing with the, with, the, with the dragon, and they're not quite sure the bear and the dragon dancing is an unpleasant sight, but both of them never quite know which is going to attack the other one and which is undermining the other one. So, it, yes, it's there. It's an important element. But Russia is still, ultimately, a bandwagoning state. It's trying to join international organizations. It wants to join the WTO. Putin said when he, when he first came to power, let, let us finally, Russia joined years ago, uh, let us now join. And it's not Russia which isn't trying to join, it's the West endlessly making all sorts of obstacles and difficulties. So I, mean, I think even the most, uh, I mean, I hate to say even, maybe not, the most Ed Lucasite uh, <laughs> critic would suggest that ultimately, even after 9-11 when Russia you know, joined the, the coalition of the willing and so on, that it's not been treated and recognized. So Russia is seeking autonomy in international politics, not to become an alternative. And that's a fundamental embodiment. And that's why the other things you mentioned, the murder of all the rest, well, each one of those has to be taken in its own case. As, I mean, murder of journalists is a terrible thing. Fewer under Putin than under Yeltsin. It's, uh, Russia still is, uh, I mean, absolutely right, hugely lawless in many ways. It isn't that the state is too strong, it's too weak. It cannot impose its order on society. Criminality is huge. I mean, the figures, purely the actual crime figures are still higher now than they were when Putin came to power. After all those years of centralization and such like and so forth, I mean, it's not just per capita, in absolute terms, it's much, much higher. So it, it hasn't, you talk about his murders, it's putting it you know, differently. I mean, Politkovskaya's murder, for example, was, there was, you know, who knows? I mean, as you know, there's the Chechen link and there's your Katrin Berg link. And she annoyed so many people that it's not 
prima facie, you cannot suggest it was an act of state terrorism. Similarly, I would argue, and I think it's very important to make this absolutely clear, there is, the British certainly have not made available any direct evidence that the Russian state, as a state, was involved in that murder. There may well have been factional involvement of the state, some state, and my money's on, and I think you'd better be careful. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won't say who did it then. Yeah, but anyway, the, what the, the key point is that the British have not, I mean, when they, the British sent a one-page A4 piece of paper asking for extradition, then the Russians said, well, could you please explain these in the link? They never got an answer back. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a very complicated issue. With both sides, if you ask my opinion, have not engaged, as they should have done, in trying to solve what was a terrible murder. Very, very, just a very quick comment. I mean, I, I don't think Russians are indifferent to the points you made, but let me turn it the other way around. Um, uh, you know, for example, the, you know, the bombers flying. Okay, they haven't dropped any bombs. You know, they're flying. They're, they're, they're playing a sort of political military game. Um, why is that worse than the Americans simply announcing, we're going to put um, anti-missile systems in Poland and the Czech Republic without actually being aware that this might offend Russian sensibilities? This, you know, this... You know, look at Russian history and the history of being invaded and so on. You know, Russians are not just paranoid. Russians have good, good reason to, to feel that their country uh, is under threat because they have, you know, they've been invaded from all sides over the, over the centuries. Um, and you know, I think that one of the biggest problems is that many people in the West who said in the, in the 90s when Russia was in chaos, you know, oh, no, we don't want a weak Russia because that's not good for the world, particularly as it's got all these nuclear weapons. Actually, now that Russia isn't as weak anymore, have suddenly they, they didn't really think through their words at the time. And what they don't like, actually, is Russia being a bit more assertive. And, and the question, and I'll leave it as a question, is, uh, is Russia being aggressive or is it being assertive? Thank you. Roy. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, Roy Allison, the, the LSE. Uh, I think this question is uh, principally directed to Richard. Uh, politics is about representation, but it's also about legitimacy and how that legitimacy is generated and sustained. Now, in the picture you paint and others have, it's clear that institutions are not very effective at generating that legitimacy themselves. And you have institutions that don't really work within the Constitution, you have parallel institutions that within the Constitution and so forth. And that therefore, legitimacy has been seen very much associated with people's personal popularity, these very high levels of popularity. Now, that raises questions. Um, you mentioned the transfer of that popularity. Last summer, in the, the kind of polling that was done in Russia, we, we were told that both Dmitry Medvedev and Sergei Ivanov did not themselves individually get more than about 5% against Putin had 60-70%. Now, Medvedev, almost overnight, is transformed to be very high levels. Somehow, uh, he is turned from that 5% to something, well, not quite at Putin levels, but something very substantial, 50-60% perhaps. I wonder how meaningful this is, and it, it raises questions about really whether that legitimacy is something substantive how can it be transferred in that way from one to the other? Um, is, it, is, is there some kind of virtual reality about this? This is very fundamental because, as I said, legitimacy is the core of uh, rule of politics. Uh, and 
the absence of other institutions working in the way that we might expect them to work, there's a lot of attention paid to interpersonal sexuality and the need to look at that behaviour. Absolutely. I mean, the fundamental question, how does the system uh, retain its uh, legitimacy? And, uh, uh, and the problem about these weak institutions is, of course, one which uh, affected, of course, throughout the 1990s. It, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's systemic. And it isn't Putin, it isn't Yeltsin, it's systemic. That, in a sense, democracy in Russia has had to create the conditions for its own existence. And this is uh, in well, I a mean, very difficult context, and uh, it's got to do it. At the same time, referring to a pre the previous question, it's got to do it. it, it I mean, the fall of communism in all the other 28 post-communist, well, 27 post-communist countries was seen as a moment of liberation, of victory, and so on and so forth. In Russia, it's the one where the fall of communism was accompanied with a fall of geopolitical status, with a fall, loss of territory, loss of economic coherence, loss of state identity and national identity, and you know, a whole range of issues. And hence, no wonder, in the, that context, and economic collapse, in that and emergence of a particularly rapacious form of oligarchical capitalism. So in that context, clearly, how could those institutions, how can a Duma, which in the 1990s was blocking fundamental economic legislation, which was essential land ownership uh, laws about, and so on and so forth, even though it was in the Constitution. And even as we know, the adoption of the Constitution itself in the first two years between 91 and 93 almost led to civil war. So, you know, this is a hugely complicated process of uh, re well, the rebuilding, recreating a, a new state, new government, and so on. So, yes, the institutions cannot generate a legitimacy which uh, is indeed at the very basis of a modern democratic capitalist order. And in fact, worse than that, this is the whole point, even Hodorkovsky in his letters from prison, left turn and left turn too, said precisely the major question facing Russia today, and he said to Putin, maybe next leader, is to legitimize the property settlement that took place in 1990. Even that isn't accepted. LDPR doesn't accept it at Shirinovsky in these elections. Uh, the communists, of course, don't accept it. Just Russia is extraordinarily critical. It's taken an extreme left view of this. So the only one left, and this is why Putin says, which isn't calling for a new revolution, a new settlement, is United Russia. So in a sense, this is the guarantee of stability. The very, not just institutions, but the very processes, the very existence of the state is not accepted as legitimate. Hence, the regime undermines and acts as a sub, as a, to mimic and indeed to, as it were, act as a substitute for real social forces, which itself would then destroy the very basis of the state's existence. So the state, the system cannot reproduce itself within an enclosed late system of modern democratic institutions. But hence, the Kremlin regime acts as some sort of you know, nanny state, to use uh, perhaps not a unfranco, rather nastier term, real bit a state which acts in, in loco parentis while democracy grows. That is That's certainly part, Putin's, Putin's image. That's the way he sees it. And when you say to Putin, look, well, you may well be, you know, good intentions and so on, despite, you know, your course and so on. But then what is the limit? I mean, will you subordinate yourself to the constitutional order which you are claiming to defend? And that's where the big issue comes. So how can a system which hasn't got any external constraint can constrain itself? So this is my feeling in these elections now, which has been you know, the, the moment of crisis of such a fragile system is the succession, and that Putin has been absolutely brilliant. If you remember before December, Putin was getting more and more tetchy. If you remember, he was, you know, obviously he's always tetchy with the British nowadays, where Lavrov says systemic breakdown of relations, but even with the West and so on. 
And this tetchiness, and he was quite, you know, as Gordon said in his latest speech, he made some normal comments, but that, that sort of nervousness, which was intense until December, I'd never seen him like this. You know, really frightened that the whole system was going to fall apart and he would lose control of the succession process. And then, if, then, then we would have had open fractional conflict, which could have taken any number of forms, but all of them would have been very nasty and destabilizing. He has managed the succession process. It's not very pretty from democratic theory, but perhaps even beyond democracy, he would argue, there is governance and even stateless. Let us keep the state together and in a matter of time, let these institutions gain legitimacy and so on. So, I mean, your question is a fundamental one, and he raises the, the fundamental issue of the nature, not just of the political order, but of the political processes. How could it survive in, in a so-called transition? Thank you. Uh, Jonathan Cohen from Conciliation Resources. I'd actually like to follow up on Roy's question, Richard, um, because you just said that Putin has managed the process of secession a little bit early because we're still waiting for it to happen. But it seems to me this is quite an extraordinary process of succession when you have someone who's going to be the prime minister um, who has been the most powerful personality in Russian politics for so long and will continue to be so. There's an almost, uh, Roy called it virtual, the, the virtual popularity that's been created around Medvedev. And one has to wonder to what extent that's going to be a real popularity or is it artificial? And so I'd like to push further on, on how sustainable this relationship will be when you have such a charismatic and, and influential figure playing the role that Putin will be playing. And, and given the, the system that the two of you have described and Stephen's scenario about a possible six months down the line change in the situation, is it, is it going to be feasible in the Russian state as it presently is for Putin to be in the background managing the factions as you described? when he's been used to managing the whole system. And who's really going to be wearing the trousers? Because Russia seems to be a state where it needs to be clear who's wearing the trousers. And I, and I wonder if, if that managed succession that you described is actually a succession that's going to have an awful lot more pitfalls than, than um, so far has been outlined. Right, Richard, who's going to wear the trousers in the managed place? <laughs> Well, indeed. The, the, I mean, this notion of virtual, yes. I mean, as you know, uh, Andrew Wilson's book, Virtual Politics in Russia, which uh, I, I found was always misleading because uh, the virtuality is always there in the sense of the, the, the clones, the, the spoiler parties, and so on, the, the political technology. Political scientists, of course, who've got nothing better to do than to advise politicians and earn lots of money. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe we ought to go into it. But it's uh, this virtual. In fact, I've always said, you know, it's nothing virtual about it. There's real problems being solved by real politicians who have to deal with these genuine issues. So there's, I mean, they do it in uh, nasty ways, in an untidy way, but they do it. The, the popularity of Medvedev, um, uh, the latest John Paul and uh, interview is quite clear that 75% of Medvedev's uh, popularity is transferred. It, it's Putin's electorate who has now shifted over to Medvedev. So. How real that is, I, I, I would suggest that's quite real. Of course, what is given can be taken away. But in a sense, if, if now, I mean, Putin couldn't withdraw that. It's, he's committed himself to Medvedev, and that's going to happen. The, the uh, duumvirate at the head of Russian politics, uh, I mean, there's lots of, we're moving into new territory all around. Because never before has there been, if you like, such, I mean, in for, fairly formal terms, even more than 99 when Yeltsin resigned uh, in advance, this is going according to the Constitution. And that's a huge achievement. I mean, he may not say that's much, but at least they've got a constitution and he's sticking to it. So when the, the British say, give us the Lugovoy, 
despite Article 61 of the Constitution, which says you cannot extradite a Russian citizen. So they're sticking to the Constitution. It's Putin becoming Prime Minister is a perfectly legal, perfectly legitimate thing to do, especially in, 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 in both in constitutional terms and in political terms. He has the experience, he has the ability, he's going to be managing the factions, he's also going to be pushing forwards this uh, social agenda which uh, Stephen mentioned, which is hugely important. That speech was his electoral manifesto. So while uh, Medvedev has made his manifesto, it's coming out in the next few days. Then Putin as well, so they are fighting the election as a joint team. I have a feeling it's going to work quite well. They've worked together all the, all the way since the early 1990s when they were together in St. Petersburg and uh, Putin was the vice mayor and uh, Medvedev was head of the legal section at that time and they know each other exceptionally well. Plus, of course, Medvedev worked with Gazprom as the chair of the board of directors and we know that Putin um, has to approve every single deal in Gazprom above $50 million. So, I mean, they're both <laughs> Gazprom people, if you like, almost in a sense. So I have a feeling it could work. I mean, I'll give my little prediction is that Putin will stay prime minister for two years. Then he will go off and he will become head of the Olympic Committee. Russia won the Olympics, the Winter Olympics of 2014. He'll take some sort of post of that nature, some sort of symbolic, but you know, giving him status and mobility. And gradually he will fade away and the Medvedev presidency will then um, take over as you know, fully fledged. So there's an interim period for two years where Putin acts as the cover you know, as a flanker, and then uh, Medvedev takes over. And uh, Medvedev, as I absolutely agree with Stephen, he's not a pushover. There's a lot in the Western press. He's actually quite tough, and uh, all the evidence, internal evidence, he's got his own team. He's pushed forwards his own people, head of the arbitrary court early on, despite a lot of criticism, Anton Ivanov turned out to be a very fine you know, head of the arbitration court, and so on and so forth. So even in personnel terms, that I don't think that there'll be a massive changeover of ministers either or of the elite. It'll be, a very, it'll be a smooth transition to the new presidency for two years, and then Putin goes off to do something international organization, maybe head of the EU president. <laughs> if I just one quick point just to add. I mean, I think, uh, Jonathan, I think one of the biggest changes uh, that has to be made here is uh, the mindset of, uh, of all of us, of Sovietologists, Russianologists, whateverologists we want to call ourselves. Um, because, you know, hearing, uh, you know, as you say, well, you know, can Putin, can this, this system work? It's ne they've never had it before. Think back to the 90s when Yeltsin was still, was still president and it was, you know, well, what's going to happen? Because no Russian leader has ever voluntarily stepped down before. Guess what? He did. And, and you know, surprised everyone on the 31st of January 1999. You know, the, um, I think when we, you know, what we have to give the Russian politicians, the Russian system, the Russians generally, is actually a bit more credit for the fact that, you know, look at the changes that they've, they've made in, in the last uh, 16, 20 years, really, um, and, and actually say, well, you know, yeah, okay, they haven't tried that before, but why shouldn't it? You know, turn it the other way around. Why shouldn't it work? Uh, Donald Davidson. Um, Zhirinovsky is his most intriguing character in... Um, Donald Davidson. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to know about what you, what you two, uh, what you make of Zhirinovsky, you know, the most intriguing um, character in um, post-Soviet politics. And I first heard of him when he um, supported the um, August Putsch of 1991. Now, what I'm saying is, I mean, what I can't work out, <coughs> to what extent is he some kind of a Kremlin stooge, and then what extent is he like a, a, a genuine political force in, in, in Russian politics? His party, LDPR, does vote with the government almost entirely in the Duma. So in that sense, he's, uh, he's an independent 
politician, but he's closely allied. He knows that he doesn't step beyond the line. On the other hand, uh, Zhirinovsky is, uh, you know, we have underestimated him. Yes, that in the early 90s, he, uh, he I mean, he, he still, he was, the, their party was the only party that voted against the dissolution of the USSR, um, hence the putsch early, and supporting the putsch uh, earlier on. So in a sense, it's, it's a consistent policy, which was to keep the Soviet Union together. Then that disappeared. Now he's got consistent policies for abolishing the federal system to make Russia, once again, a unitary state to abolish national, ter national you know, ethnic territorialism to make it simply a territorial federal system. And, you know, a whole series of other policies which one may like them or not, which have uh, raising issues. So initially there's a rumor, of course, that he was supported, uh, I mean, he certainly was supported by Gorbachev, whether it was a KGB in 1990 when his party was established. So there is a fundamental early point uh, about that. Yet he gets the vote. I mean, the point is that the Kremlin doesn't touch him. But on the other hand, he gets very solid, solid figures. He gets a solid vote each time. And it's in part a protest vote. But in part, you know, this, his electorate is small-town Russia. Those people who uh, feel the decline of great power status, those people at the margins economically. So it's not the successful business people who would... You know, what's, you know, now they're used to vote, the liberals don't even do that anymore. So, I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon, not to be underestimated, and it does provide, of course, an extra nearly 50 seats, which will vote for the pro-government party. So they could, if they wanted to, forcefully constitutional change with that supermajority in the Duma. I've actually met him twice, and um, I can't say I've enjoyed either occasion. Um, uh, he, he is quite, he is indeed, he's a product of the KGB. I mean, his party is. His party was the very first party to register in 1990 when they, after they abolished Article 6 of the Soviet Constitution. It registered before the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Uh, and you couldn't have, he couldn't have done that if he hadn't been supported by the KGB. So I have no doubts at all that uh, that, that is his background. Um, elements of him, he, to, a, to some extent, he is barking mad. Um, he is, however, a very good populist politician in that uh, he comes out with phrases and slogans that people like you know, whether it was washing the, you know, we're going to march on, on the south and wash our boots in the Indian Ocean. Um, but he is a populist politician who is entirely controlled by, by the Kremlin. Um, and it, it, he's something of a safety valve in that, uh, as Richard said, you know, he can pick up some of these votes from uh, perhaps more extremists who, who can identify with him. Um, but the Kremlin know that ultimately he's always going to support them. So I, I actually, you know, he's gone through various stages. At one time he looks as if he might have been a serious threat. Then he looks as if he was a serious clown. Um, now I think, you know, he's, he's a populist politician who's on the Kremlin side and, um, you know, worth, worth a laugh at the expense for, from, uh, from a number of Russian comedians, basically. Yeah. Um, the question to both of you, sorry, uh, Eli Videtsky, LSE student. Um, a question to both of you. Um, you spoke a little bit about these factions. Uh, you first, and then both of you did, actually. Um, and you mentioned that uh, Medvedev was from the sort of more lawyer faction. But you also mentioned that the Siloviki had something about 70, 75% of all major posts. Or you mentioned something along those lines. And I was wondering how that would play out, because clearly the Siloviki are, are a very, very powerful force within Russia, who will not be may be so happy that the president is now not necessarily on their side on all issues. Um, just to see how, how the future, not only between um, Putin and Medvedev will play out, but also between the various factions that, that have been sort of subdued under this rock that you mentioned. I think Thank united you. we stand, divided we fall. Hang on, I, I think yeah. I'm going to take the, the upper 
another two questions. I think I'm going to take them and then we can answer all three of them together. Just run over there. Hi, hi there. Um, my name, excuse me. My name is Quentin Webb. I had a quick question about press freedom, particularly freedom of the uh, kind of televisual media, which is the most important kind of form in, in Russia. Can you give us your opinion on how bad or otherwise that is now and what prospects under a Medvedev regime for an amelioration? I don't know, this, this thing probably works. Um, Dominic Levin, LSE. Uh, slightly off the wall comments, but I think four of them linked. One is that it seems to me that the origins of liberal and then democratic systems are rooted in the security of property. They were initially created to protect property, and where property is insecure, those kinds of representative, let alone democratic systems, haven't had a very good record of survival. And that certainly seems to me true in sort of peripheral Europe in the 19th and first half of the 20th century. Leading on from that, it seems to me that, you know, you're asking an awful lot for any kind of open political system to survive in Russia if actually vast amounts of wealth are at stake in terms of who wins or loses political game. The third sort of point, which is only tangentially connected, is really just a comment on the basis of comparisons with Japan. I mean, if you're looking at previous chief executive officers of government, who then, in theory, resigned from that position, and yet in practice, remain top dog as being head of the faction to which the next six prime ministers belong. Japan provides perfect examples of that. What strikes me, though, is inevitably, firstly, a cultural element and then a historical one. I mean, you know, the whole point about Russian history uh, is that power is out there and is seen. The emperor is, in his aura, is to do with his power. This is not the Japanese monarchy. Um, institutions as such in imperial Russia may have counted for very little and had not great legitimacy, but the supreme power, which is a sort of institution, had enormous legitimacy. Uh, and I would have thought that that is relevant now. Uh, you know, once you are the person who embodies the supreme power, um, okay, you can be bumped off and murdered, Putin could kick, kick you aside in six months' time, perhaps that happened under the monarchy. Um, but within the context of Russian history and Russian culture, um, standing in that position gives you a huge uh, automatic charisma, uh, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and in that sense, I suspect you'd have to be careful making comparisons with other systems, of which the Japanese one, of course, is the most extreme case, in which traditionally, actually, you've had a very great divorcing of formal and real power, which has almost become a cultural norm in a lot of Japanese countries, even now. Sorry, I've wandered off. But it is, I think, quite interesting not to make the inevitable comparisons with Western democracy. Uh, and Japanese, in inverted commas, democracy is actually not badly managed, guided, or whatever other term Mr. Putin and Mr. Medvedev might want to use too. I'll say a word uh, about the factionalism, which is absolutely central, of course, of what's going on at the moment. Uh, the Sinoviki um, had had a problem over the last year or so 
First of all, their power was greatly over-exaggerated by some of those studies. When I said allegedly 70%, you're quite right, I didn't use that figure, but, uh, I mean, figures, uh, you know, varied, but, you know, even 25 of the top, percent of the top elite came from, and they've been going. Secondly, an equal amount of the top elite were from the business community. So, in a sense, that there was the Putin's system, since he came to power, has seen these two echelons going forwards. People from the business world and those from the security apparatus. This, but the key point was, is that none of these factions were able to seize the policy agenda. That was the secret of the Putin system. Is that uh, even though there were these factions, and he was a master at balancing them, we saw after this, uh, the conflict over with Cherkesov and his speech, and then he, one was raised, and it was a constant balance, and you could follow it through, and it's enormously tedious, but you can do it, name after name, and who was appointed where, and such like. So it, he'd been a brilliant faction manager, but he'd always managed to prevent the Sloviki, so-called, to seize the policy agenda in all sorts of regions, above all in economic. That's where the liberals, Kudrin and, and uh, Zhukov and others have kept it. So they've been kept out, that's a key part. I mean, it's, we can say a lot more about that, but basically, um, their key dilemma in the last year or so is that, you know, people like Igor, uh, Igor Sechin and uh, others, they didn't have a candidate of their own for the presidency. <coughs> they sometimes, people assumed it was Sergei Ivanov, but they couldn't stand Ivanov, and Ivanov couldn't stand them. So he was very much a, an independent figure. So that's one reason why he came across that anyway. Um, so they didn't have a candidate of their own. Their only candidate they had was a third-term Putin. And that's what, that's my interpretation of the Lubinenko thing, was to embarrass him. So in other words, it was an anti-Putin act. So they embarrassed him. The British, of course, fell immediately into the trap and fell, did what the Sulevity wanted to do, which was to force and to uh, exacerbate the atmosphere to such a degree that Putin was then forced to stay on for a third term. And so they were pushing for a third term because Putin was the only one that would guarantee that block to settlement of which uh, Terry mentioned. So uh, they didn't, and, but of course, Putin is outflanked them by putting forward candidates. As for um, I mean, media freedom, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. It's, I mean, Russia, in a strange sort of way, as always, is paradoxical. It has one of the freest media laws in the world. It really does. I mean, it's got 600 independent television stations. It's got 25,000 different journals and newspapers and so on. The internet, between the latest figures, that 10% of the Russian population on a daily basis, log in and get their news from the internet, which is not, there's no Chinese wall there. It is open, absolutely open. Of course, the four major television stations and plus Yen TV have lost a lot of their color. But even then, you know, the, the diversity, I've just come back from a conference in Moscow last week, absolutely extraordinary where, you know, we had, you know, after the first day of the conference, the delegation, you know, the delegation from Ukraine said, no, we couldn't believe it. You know, we were, we were talking and criticizing. In fact, it was Dorya Gurk who criticized the Putin system. And they said, no, we couldn't believe it, that, uh, you know, this openness. They had got the impression that the whole system had clamped down and closed. The top media, yes, they've, they've lost some of the diversity and some of the key figures, and it's much more gray and anodyne in the four top digital media. But there's still a very, very diverse uh, media life. And public sphere, there's debate in Russia. Uh, thank you. Very quickly. Um, Sylvie Key, uh, I think one of the things that's helped, I was starting to say, um, united we stand, divided we fall. The thing is, they're not, divided, they're not united amongst themselves. There is, you know, they are not a block. Uh, and I mean, as Richard pointed out, one reason why many of them hated Ivanov is because Ivanov was made defense minister and the, and the army hated him because he was KGB. 
Um, you know, the, actually, this is one thing we often tend to ignore as well. We, we, we look at Russia as kind of either a block or certain strong blocks, and, and, we, and we, we don't allow for personalities. Um, and in, uh, even in Soviet times, you know, there, was, there was tremendous pettiness and bitchiness and backbiting between uh, the, the KGB and the GRU military intelligence, um, and, and, then, and then the army hated them both. And, and, and actually, these sort of petty, this sort of petty infighting still goes on. So I think that's actually helped. Um, other than that, I agree with what Richard said. Um, press uh, media freedom. Um, I don't think Russia's ever had media freedom. I mean, post-Soviet Russia, I would say from 91 to 95, 96, there was media anarchy uh, when you could say what you liked. Um, didn't have to check the facts or anything. You don't let the facts get in the way. You know, if it's a good story, if it sounds good. Um, so actually, I don't think that was ideal. And, and I really do think that the media sold its soul in 1996 when, when it allowed itself to be used. Okay, it was in the hands of the oligarchs, but it allowed itself to be used blatantly, unfairly, to, to, uh, to, to bang the communists and, and to support Yeltsin and get Yeltsin back in. And I think it's, it's actually um, uh, really uh, rather pathetic to, to hear them people saying, oh, you know, Putin's clamped down on the media. The media clamped down on itself in 1996. Um, and uh, as Richard said, there is quite a lot of variety out there. And I think one of the things actually where, you know, when we do, if we try and bash the Russian media now, you know, look at dumbing down of the media around the world, right, just take this country. I mean, it, I, I think it's pathetic, the, the dumbing down. So, um, and I would uh, try, I, I bow to you on Japan, because I know that you know a lot more about Japan than I, than I ever would. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll agree with me that our speakers have certainly shown us how fascinating uh, Russia is and how one can go on uh, speculating and talking and, and arguing about it virtually forever. Thank you very much. Richard, thank you very much, Stephen.